Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. We are in Ezra chapter 6, just going to finish up uh, chapter 6. We've just got a few verses. The year is uh, 515, 516 as the temple is being completed. We're going to see tonight in these verses just the celebration of them uh, beginning and resuming the temple services. Uh, And then we're going to begin chapter 7, read through it. It's kind of a fun chapter. A lot of things taking place. There's going to be 57 years between chapter 6 and then chapter 7, which begins uh, in 458 B.C., the seventh year of Artaxerxes. As you can see right here, if we are in uh, 515, 516, it's during Darius's reign. Darius has given them permission. The records have been checked. Cyrus gave the decree to rebuild the temple. There was opposition back in the lands, the Samaritans, uh, the, the, the pagans or the Gentiles that had come in with all their foreign religions. Religion was a complete you know, mess of all kinds of... Uh, the name of Yahweh was there, but also there was uh, pagan sacrifices, pagan rituals, pagan culture. And the Jews that were left in the land probably got absorbed into that corruption. And so when the Jews come back, according to uh, Cyrus's decree, they arrive in 536... Cyrus became emperor in 539, 538, 537, he makes the decree. Cyrus Cylinder, uh, we got records of that in the uh, the British Museum. They go back and they they lay the foundation, put the altar up, and all kinds of opposition breaks out. Hostility, also legal action, tied things up all the way up until 520 when Haggai and Zechariah arose, two prophets, we went through those books, and basically chewed the people out, encouraged the people. They got a vision, and they began building. Uh, the reg- they were challenged, and the Samaritans sent a letter over. Darius checked the records and found out. They went back to the archive, and they actually found. Uh, they checked Babylon. They checked uh, Susa. They checked Ecbatana. And those would be the three places the emperor would live, was Babylon, Susa, and Ecbatana, depending on the season. And they finally found records, Cyrus's decree, that they could build it. So now you've got Cyrus, now you've got Darius saying, you go, and they were told the taxation on this side of the river, which is called the Trans-Euphrates, other side of the river, should finance the building of the temple. And so now you've got Cyrus's decree, you've got the prophets telling them to get it done, uh, you've now got finances, it's the Lord's will, and it's time, and they have it done by 515. And so that's kind of where we ended up in chapter 6. If you look in chapter 6, uh, I'll read very quickly in the, uh, the NIV, uh, beginning in verse 13, uh, chapter 6, verse 13. Then because of the decree of King Darius had sent Tatani, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Sether Bazenai, and their associates carried it out with diligence. Now these were the two, he's the governor, Tatani, was the governor of Trans-Euphrates, and he was against it, but he sent records over, or asked for records to be found. They found the records, and now they've done a complete 180. Uh, the I- other individual that's mentioned there, the uh, Sether Bozenai, Bo- uh, he would be, in a sense, the secretary. The governor, the political leader, the secretary, is, in a sense, the eyes and ears of the king, recording everything that the Tenai does. So uh, Darius in five, uh, 515, 516, that time period, uh, says do it, sends a decree, but the secretary would be the one observing it and recording it. And so the Tenai can't just go ahead and do what he wants to on the other side of the river because there's constant reports being sent back. And I've showed you before, but I, I should show it to you again. They, the, you could go from Susa all the way over to the coast uh, where the seven churches are. Uh, you want to say that the, over by uh, Constantinople, over to that coast of uh, the Aegean coast between Greece and, and Turkey today. Uh, you could do that like in a matter of like 11 days. They had, they had the, a Pony Express route running, and they had a highway built. So there was very rapid. When they said they're going to send over to get records, it's happening very fast. So nonetheless... It was a very organized empire. And uh, chapter thir- uh, 
6 verse 13, Then because of the decree of King Darius had sent Tanai the governor of Trans-Euphrates and Sether Bozani and their associates, carried, these are all Persian officials, carried it out with diligence, meaning here's the money, here's the lumber, here's the timber, here's whatever you need. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the descendant of Idu. Now we went through their two books. So they began preaching and prophesying, but they continued. We don't have record necessarily, although we may have in Zechariah. The uh, early Zechariahs are dated. Darius, uh, uh, Haggai's are dated. The end of Zechariah, we have to kind of guess when they are. But they would have continued to prophesy. And with that, the word of God. So you've got the decree from the emperor. You've got the prophets of the Lord. And so the people are without excuse. They're motivated. They're financed. They have, there's no opposition. Anyone who comes against them. We saw last week they ended up, if anyone comes against it, if you look in verse 11, furthermore, in the decree, I'm going back to last week, verse 11, I decree, Darius says, that if anyone changes this edict, a beam is to be pulled from his house, which means the house will collapse, and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. Now, if you remember impaled, uh, we had on the previous poster, we had the Assyrians impaling people you can see it in the British Museum on uh, uh, Sennacherib's palace in the gypsum stone that surrounded his palace room or the entrance into it. He had the last battle of Lachish when they, the last fortified city of Judah fell. And there was Jews on poles, just stuck on poles outside the city, which was not unusual. That's what the Assyrians would do. And so the Persians have picked up this practice. Uh, a beam will be taken out and probably be sharpened to a point stuck in the ground you'll be impaled on the beam from your house and for this crime his house is to be made a pile of rubble obviously the beam the house collapsed you're impaled on the beam that's what's going to happen if you disagree with this decree and so along with that decree and that threat and the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah it says in verse uh I'm halfway through verse 14, it looks like. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple, now again, we'll come back and look at that. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles, we'll look at that list, celebrated the dedication they're going to celebrate the dedication of the temple of the house of god with joy for the dedication of the house of god they offered a hundred bulls 200 rams 400 male lambs and as a sin offering for all of israel 12 male goats one for each of the tribes of israel and they installed the priests in their divisions and the levites in their groups for the service of god at jerusalem according to what is written in the book of Moses. Now, verse 19 starts talking about the Passover, but let's talk about these verses here. I'm going to go to the notes, if you don't mind, on page one. Uh, there you've got the English Standard Version, chapter 6, verse 13 at the top. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, to Tenai, the governor of the province of beyond the river, and Sethar Bazani, and their associates did all with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered, you know, with the threat being a beam will be pulled out of your house, you'll be impaled on it. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu. They finished their building by the decree of God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Some things that I'm going to mention here. Number one, it says the elders of the Jews did this work. Interestingly, and I, I mentioned it last week, Zerubbabel is not mentioned. This is known as Zerubbabel's temple. Zerubbabel was the center of the book of Zechariah. Zerubbabel was the one who came back. He helped lay the foundation. He's been overseeing all this time period. We call it Zerubbabel's temple, but his name is not there. We don't know why. Maybe he's just included, but you'd think a guy like that, because he's, he's the, the, kind of the forerunner of this, would be mentioned. The idea is possibly he died. Uh, or because of the, the, the references to the Messiah in the book of Zechariah. Again, everybody thinks they're living in the end times. If it's you know, the, the days of Noah, if it's the days of Babel, if it's 
you know, it was Jeremiah going into exile, coming back from exile if the Messiah Jesus comes. But these people may not have a full under, again, we not, I don't want to say may not, they do not have a full understanding of what's to take place. They've got the prophets, just like we're looking into the future. They don't see Alexander. They don't see the Maccabean revolt, the solutions. They don't see Jesus coming to Herod's temple. They don't see the book of, they don't know any of these things, just like we don't know what's coming. And so because of Zechariah's messianic temperature of the book, uh, Zerubbabel, who was, in, was a descendant of David, may have got uh, unintentionally or just got caught in the crossfires of some kind of a ideal of a revolt. There was revolts, especially right here after Cambyses died, there was revolts when Darius took over. There's going to be revolts as we get into chapter 7. Egypt is going to revolt. And so Zerubbabel may have been removed uh, some reason. We, again, that's really speculation, but just so you know that there was the potential of people taking it too far. You get the permission to build the temple. Now we're going to build a temple. Now we're going to take over the government, uh, to overthrow the empire. I mean, who would think that? Well, the Jews of 66 AD, the Jews of 6 AD before Jesus, they tried to do the very thing to the Romans. It was squelched. They tried to do it again in 66 AD. They were destroyed, but they regrouped and did it again in 132 AD. Try to throw, overthrow the Roman Empire. Why? Because they get this religious fever going that they think they're going to establish the kingdom of God. That could have happened here. We, again, it was, it's, it's possible. It, you're at the right season. You've got the right prophets. It could have happened. But anyway, he's not mentioned. Also notice, credit is given to the decree of, uh, of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus. So the, the temple was done. They're saying it was the decree. And it doesn't say just, the, it's interesting, and this is Jewish theology, and you should embrace it because it's Christian theology. It was decreeing, the reason the temple was done, the Lord decreed it, but also it was a decree of Darius. So it's like you see, and we know the Lord is directing the kings. We don't have a trouble here of who's in charge, but they don't just say Darius was a non-issue. The Lord's decree, but also Darius. If it wasn't for Darius, we would not have had this. Now they also, just so you see that, they give credit to Cyrus, Darius, and again, we're right here, 516. So Cyrus gave the original decree. They had opposition. Darius reinforced it with a threat of a beam being taken out and you being impaled on it. Okay, okay, we'll cooperate. So Darius gets it done, but the Lord's the one who established it. In fact, the Lord told Isaiah this was going to happen. But these are the men that are doing it. And that's 516. But if you look at the list, you should, you should notice and you should wonder, whoa, whoa, is this an heir? By the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. It's like who has not yet been born yet because he's the son of Xerxes, who's the son of Darius. And this temple was completed because of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. It's like, what? Why did they put Artaxerxes in there? And the, the reason is they're combined, probably com not just they're talking about this situation in 520, but they're talking about all the work that the Persian kings, who are later here, are going to be addressed as the kings of Assyria, right here in, in chapter 7, beginning chapter 7, the kings of Assyria are going to be seen as having favor, and it's going to be because of God's work in them, just like the kings of Assyria, if we go ahead and say this, you had the Assyrians, which are overthrown by the Babylonians, the Babylonians overthrown by the Persians, the Persians by Alexander, the Greeks, they become the Seleucids, they're going to split up after Alexander's death, Seleucids, Ptolemy, Ptolemy uh, Ptolemy's in the Egypt, Seleucids in, in Syria, but when Nebuchadnezzar took over the Assyrians, he was the king of the Chaldeans, but then he became the king of the Assyrians. Well, when the Persians come in, they take over Babylon. They're ruling in Babylon. Uh, they're going to be called the kings of the Persians or the kings of the Babylonians. They're going to be, especially in this context, the kings of Assyria because it's the, the empire just keeps switching. In fact, there is a king's list uh, later on, that lists all the kings of Assyria, starting with 
uh, an Assyrian king going through Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar, listing all the Persian kings, the Greek kings, and listing a couple of the Seleucid kings ruling in Syria as being the kings of Assyria because they just inherit the kingdom as it goes down. And so the fact that Artaxerxes is put in this list, we'll read it here again, uh, they finished the building by the decree of God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. There, it's just interesting. They have from 458, Artaxerxes' name is there, and that's exactly what chapter 7, is. the whole chapter 7 is basically a letter from Artaxerxes telling Ezra to go back and teach the people the law. So it's anticipating that. It may be an editorial note. Uh, but his contributions will be coming in line with Cyrus and Darius. And again, in typical Jewish fashion, uh, that's the decree of the Lord, but it's men that are acting out on it. And so, uh, again, there's just a, a good way of viewing the world, viewing life, is y- y- when you see something happening in the world, it may be, it looks like men are doing it, but it's the Lord behind it. Just like Jesus going to his death, Judas did it but it was the lord's will and people just step in line if it be for evil or for good depends on what it is uh, depends on where their heart's at whatever they do god is going to use that a classic example is joseph being sold into slavery and when his brothers show up they're afraid he says what you meant for evil god meant for good you can't overthrow the lord just we just keep going and so they see the same thing okay it continues in chapter 6 verse 15 And the house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. That's, if you want to date, March 12, 515 B.C. And if if that's the correct date, uh, it was a Sabbath that year. It was a Saturday that year. Uh, It was finished 21 years after it was constructed. It took 21 years to get it done. They didn't work on it the whole time, but if you remember the letter that they sent gave the impression they were working on it the whole time, that they were still following Cyrus's decree. Um, the temple would stand. This temple was going to stand, this is interesting, was going to stand for 585 years. So in other words, it's going to be destroyed in 70 A.D. It's going to stand for 585 years. It's going to be transformed into Herod's temple. Herod's going to basically with permission of the priest and the priest doing the work, he's going to slowly replace stone after stone until the whole thing is morphed into a larger platform, a much larger, and everything is much more glorious. But it's going to stand for 585 years. Solomon's temple, on the other hand, stood for just short of 400 years. Uh, and so this temple stands. So that's how long the two temples have stood so far. Uh, chapter 6, verse 16, And the people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Uh, the participants are mentioned. And again, A, the people of Israel is literally the sons of Israel, which would include all 12 tribes. It is the covenant name, the reference to the covenant people, all 12 tribes. And again, you, you don't have any trouble understanding when they came back from Babylon, all 12 tribes came back. Because when northern Israel fell in 721 uh, uh, to the Assyrians, uh, during the, the war, during the invasions, people were fleeing Samaria, northern Israel, down to Jerusalem, fleeing into Judea. That's why Hezekiah had to expand the walls to accommodate all the people. So when northern Israel fell, they had representatives in Judah from all the tribes. Then those people were deported the Jews were deported to different countries, different lands, but there were all 12 tribes in Jerusalem. So when Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes them captive, all 12 tribes go into captivity, or representatives from all. It wasn't just Judah and Benjamin and all the other lost tribes of Israel. Uh, they're, they're scattered across, but a lot of them would have morphed into their culture, just like those that were left morphed into the pagan cultures that invaded their, or imported into their land. But there were all 12 tribes. So all 12 tribes would have come back. And so that's what this means. People of Israel, the sons of Israel, a term reference to the covenant people, the priests and Levites, that's a given. And if we look, uh, when they came back, 
they, earlier in the book of Ezra here, they had, when, before we'd gone to Haggai and Zechariah, earlier in the book, they had to have paperwork. When you came back and you say, well, I'm a priest, I'm from the family of the priests, great, can we see your paperwork? Got burnt in the fires in 586. Don't, don't have, don't have, Babylonian burned it. It's like, well, go get a job. McDonald's is hiring right now. You've got to have, I mean, this is how pure, how specific they were. And Ezra's going to step it up a notch. I mean, Ezra's going to take this up, I would say, several notches. You're going to get, when we go through the rest of Ezra, you're going to be like terrified looking at what Ezra's doing to these people and making them pure. Um, So a lot of the, when it says priests and Levites, these are people that had records, paperwork. They kept their paperwork. They took it into Babylon. They brought it back and they had documentation. This is my lineage. If you don't have the lineage, you can't be a priest. And a lot of people lost their priesthood. Uh, they, they lost their positions, which is sad, but that's the way it is. So these people, and that explains why when we get to chapter 7, Ezra's going to give you his lineage. Uh, but it also explains why, for example, Matthew and Luke can give the genealogy of Jesus. Oh, they're probably just making it up. No, they probably kept it because it was prophesied, this is prophecy, the son of David, you're going to keep record. Which tribe you belong to determined where you lived, what your inheritance was, what your, if you were in the uh, tribe of Judah, the tribe of Levi, it determined your, your fate of your family. And to just say, ah, well, we're just going to move to another state and just forget the family, maybe check in on Facebook once in a while. I mean, you had to keep connection to your family because that was where you came from was where you're going. And so to have Jesus' genealogy, that's, that's not an amazing, it's, it's an amazing thing, yes, but it's not uncommon, it's not ridiculous. And then, nonetheless, uh, the one problem is it says uh, the people of Israel, the sons of Israel, uh, the priests, the Levites, and then here's this, and the rest of the returned exiles. Now, again, that seems redundant in our little English reading here, and I, I'm not sure how much we can do with it, but the people of Israel would refer to the 12 tribes, then the priests are the priests, the Levites are the Levites, but then the rest of those that return, well, wouldn't the rest of the exiles returning be part of this up here? Aren't we saying it two times? So somehow there's a distinction, and the thing I wrote right there, point D, the rest of the returned exiles, this would be another way of referring to the non-Levitical Jews who had returned from Babylon. So if you were not, if you'd come back and you weren't a priest, you weren't a Levite, could this be talking about those that lost their records? I mean, they, they were the 12 tribes, but these are those that didn't really have their records, but they did come back with the Jews. We're a Jew, but until we get genetic testing and DNA testing, we're not going to be able to tell you where we're from because uh, we've lost all of our paperwork. We've got some family traditions, and if you maybe all have family legends in your genealogy, I had two or three family legends in my genealogy, and it was fun to tell the story until I did two things. I researched it and found out my genealogy from all kinds of different sites, and it's like those people weren't there. And then I did the spit test, which I know you're not supposed to, but I did it anyhow because what, they're going to find me anyhow, and found out my DNA, and it didn't match the family legends at all. And so, disappointingly, I'm just average, no greatness, no legends, just just a shop teacher, you know, with this, yeah, a retired shop teacher, I should say. Okay, uh, okay, but anyway, that's kind of possibly what this was, was they just had family legends, but no proof of anything. Okay, chapter 6, verse 17. They, now, now you want to know what the legends were, but we're not going to take time to hear the legends. Uh, they, they were fun, though. They offered at the dedication of this house. Now, this, again, I really wanted to, and I'm not going to take time, but this is a pretty outstanding thing they offered to dedicate the house of God. Again, this is, not, this is not a Passover. This is not the Feast of Tabernacles. This is just, we're opening the temple. The day's grand opening. Uh, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Uh, that's pretty impressive. Imagine, no, just imagine, 100 bulls. I mean, imagine a bull, and you're going to sacrifice a bull. Then you're going to sacrifice 10 bulls 
and you're only a tenth of the way done, you've got 90 bulls to go. And that's just the bulls. Then you're going to go through 200 rams, 400 lambs, and that is nothing compared to these people right here. When Solomon dedicated the temple, the numbers were enormous, dwarfing. I mean, they're almost unbelievable. And then Hezekiah is going to restore. Hezekiah is going to restore because the people have fallen away. Then Josiah is going to try to bring reform and going to invite northern Israel to come down and celebrate the Passover with them. So these people's numbers are also listed when they dedicated the temple, restored the temple, restored the temple. Uh, they're, they're, again, tremendous sacrifices were put in place there. And I got those names written right there. Uh, now, turn the page in the notes. The male goats seem to be something that was always used at a dedication. Uh, when anything is dedicated, it would appear going from what we'd say secular or something man-made and was being given to the holy or was being dedicated to the de deity, uh, the divine. The goat would be something that was used. And there's going to be 12 goats. And this is, again, says right in the text, one for each of the tribes as they're dedicating it, making this temple, not just a building made by men, but now the house of God. Chapter 6, verse 18, And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem. And this is, this is important. This is one of those little phrases uh, that you kind of want to have in your back pocket. As it is written in the book of Moses. It's like, well, that's pretty obvious here in Sunday school class. But when you get out into the academic world, what they say in the world of academics is there was no Moses. There was no Abraham. There was no David. Maybe he was a local chieftain or something. All that Old Testament, nothing. It was made up when they came back from Babylon. They made up the law of Moses. Now, you can believe that if you want to, but you're going to get crushed in an academic debate. I mean, a literal Christian-believing, archaeological-based, uh, historical, you will get destroyed because there's so much internal evidence that things that have been lost in history that they could not know in 516 or 539 or 458. You just couldn't know what it was like in Egypt or the landmarks or the culture of Abraham's time. But when we go ahead and we ex ex uh, get the Ugaritic text from the days of Abraham, the culture, the terminology, the strange things that they were doing match. And the only way they would know it is if they were part of that culture. Things that were going on in Egypt, the only way you could write those down is if you were there that time doing those things. So there's l plenty of internal evidence. Even the law of Moses matches, it's closer to the code of Hammurabi than it is to the laws of the Persians. Meaning it's the time it comes from, the culture. Uh, again, it's divine. But what my point is, there's no way they would be able to write that phrase uh, as it is written in the book of Moses if they were just in the process of forging it. They were just in the process of coming up with it. Uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't mean nothing. You'd have to write back. I mean, you've got, you've got, uh, you would ha if you were going to do that, if you were going to fabricate this kind of book, this kind of history, there, it would be so easy easy to pick apart. It'd be as easy to pick apart this book as it is the Quran or the Book of Mormon. I mean, you ever, you, who would want to defend the Book of Mormon against archaeology or historical evidence? You're going to have to go into the mystical world because it, it, you can't stand up in a court of law. The Quran, it's just, it's the greatest of the Christian cults. Basically, they've just rewritten the Jewish scriptures and reverted or twisted the New Testament issues and came up with their own, own book. It's like, it's not even original. It's, it's plagiarized. And so to, to defeat it, uh, you're going to just, the only way you can defend Islam is to just terrorize everybody. You can't have a debate. You're going to have to just be, scare everybody. But nonetheless, this is one of those things right here. The law of Moses is mentioned there because they actually had the law of Moses and they're following the directions. Now, chapter 6, verse 19. I'll just keep reading here on the notes. 
this now switches. This is now the first Passover. If you go back, this was earlier, was in March. Now this is going to be in April, uh, a few weeks later. But it says, on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. So a few weeks ago, they've, they've dedicated the temple. The priests are functioning. Everybody's clean and sanctified. Uh, what we're saying there would be ritually sanctified. They've followed all the laws. And now they're doing this before Ezra. And there is, there is a distinction between these days and when Ezra, they're doing a pretty good job. But remember how easy they were derailed. The prophets are prophesying. They're back on track. But there's going to be 57 years after this great celebration, the dedication of the Passover, there's going to be 57 years going to transpire. And uh, it's time for Ezra to show up. And Ezra's going to come under the decree of Artaxerxes and, and the Lord. And he's going to, well, he's going to, actually enforce the law of Moses. He's actually going to teach the law of Moses. And uh, it's, it's going to be brutal. When we get in, it's going to be brutal. Uh, as you, I've said it before, but one of the things he's going to do, and it what takes place in the 57, I'm jumping ahead into the rest of the book of Ezra, between these 57 years, between say 515 and 485, what's going to happen in those 57 years it looks like right here we're dedicated to the temple, the Passover, everything's going to rock and roll. We're all being holy. But now you've got to go through your daily life for 57 years. You're going to have opposition. You're going to have cultural differences. And what's going to end up by the time Ezra shows up here, some of the priests of God have married Samaritan women or wives. Now, if you're focused on the family, uh, it's like, well, you know, that's fine. That we, we want families important. Uh, but these Samaritan women were not Jewish. They were not following the law of Moses. The priests would go to work, do their thing, but they'd also live in the pagan world. And then they had children. And what was happening to the Jews during this time period was exactly what had happened to the Jews who had been left in the land during the exile. They just blended right in with everybody else they got all these other gods all these cultures uh they're going to be handing out easter eggs with easter bunnies on the resurrection day and they're going to have a red man coming down the chimney on the birth of christ you, you know what i'm saying i'm trying to be funny right there but you know they're gonna okay sorry no one laughed makes me feel awkward but uh what's going ezra's going to do is he's going to take these priests and he's going to say you get rid of the foreign women. You mean my wife? Yeah, and all those children. And they're, he's going to say, he's going to get upset, and he say, we've got to get rid of these foreign wives and your children if you want to be a priest. And it's like, oh my gosh. I mean, how can you reconcile that with the way that we think about Christianity? But what I'm saying is, Ezra's going to take this whole thing what they've got going here, it's, it's got to tend to decline. And when Ezra shows up, he's going to bring it right back up here in a way that I really have, I look at, I have a, because I'm not Jewish, I'm not Ezra, I look at some of the things he's doing and it's kind of like, be a little more compassionate, be a little more Christ-like, be a little more, yeah, be a little more like the pagans and just kind of live at peace with everybody, you know, uh, coexist. And he's like, absolutely not and then you wonder if an ezra showed up today uh where where well i think where would i be on this scale would i be one of the priests that married their foreign women and i just like just uh, going down the road just coexisting or would i be an ezra anyway that's all coming here nonetheless uh chapter 6 verse 20 for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together meaning they had to work together to purify each other because there's no like set-apart priest, except from the, uh, the, the dedication. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles for their fellow priests and themselves. So all those that had returned, they sacrificed they, the, the lamb, they begin the Passover. Chapter 6, verse 21, it was eaten. Now this is, here's a list, and here's an interesting list. This, the, the Passover lamb that was holy, 
was eaten by the people of Israel. Okay, the sons of Israel, who had returned from exile. The twelve tribes that had come back. Good, they've got their temple, they're living the right life. They're in line with the, the law of Moses. And also by everyone who had joined them. What? Who, who, who joined them? We've got the, the priest, we've got the Levites, we've got the returned exiles who had purified themselves. And we've already read in great detail, and justifiably so, you cannot mix it up with the Samaritans. They don't have the same God. They're saying Yahweh, but they don't mean Yahweh. They don't even have the books of the Bible. You've got the pagans who are saying they've got Yahweh, but they've got Yahweh right beside Dagon and Marduk and, and all these other gods. And they're sacrificing their children. They've got, we saw, one of the reverend, they have booths for the daughters. Booths for the daughters. Well, that's how you worship the God. You go in there to the daughters in the booth, have some kind of sexual activity, and you've honored the gods. It's like, and then they sacrifice their children to fire. It's like, it's like so we've already drawn a line. These people were said, no, you can't help build the temple. We don't want you around. You're not, well, we worship the same God. No, we don't. And so those people have been eliminated. But who are these? Right here. That's uh, point one. The meal was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned, by everyone who had joined them and separated himself uh, from the uncleanness of the people of the land. So the people of the land are unclean. And the reason they're unclean is they've compromised everything to get along with the, the false gods. They've, they've compromised their lifestyle, the scriptures, their worship practices. They don't, know the tr- they don't know the truth. They say they know the truth. We can explain what we worship. It's not the truth. But who are these people? Well, the people that, uh, the, that had separated themselves from the people of the land. And I, I don't know. One, the Samaritans. I would say definitely not the Samaritans. They would have been unclean because they were not pure Jews and they had corrupted their worship and false religion. And they've already been rejected by earlier in the book. The Jews not taken into captivity. Those that had been left in Judea. And that would be those that had already come in line with the pagans. And we've already read about them. They are already rejected. They had joined with the imported pagans and the false religious and their gods. The only thing I can think, and again... You're free to research it, think about it yourself. But who are, you've already says, the people of Israel who had returned from exile, but also by everyone who had joined them. They had joined them and separated themselves from the people of the land. This must be, again, this is my best I can do. This must be not the Samaritan group or the peoples of the land or this, just this, you know, this group of people. This must be an individual from those groups that look at their people, if it's the Samaritans or the, the pagan Yahweh worship system, and they say, no, we want this. And they have become Jews. They've, they've well, the, the word right there, proselytes. They've been converted. They would, we would say, saved they've been baptized they've joined the church they've left the pagan world again all those terms would need to be purified you know but proselytes uh this is most likely answered they these that have converted to judaism not just saying oh yeah we're just like you they're able to identify no we're not just like you this is the way we are but this is the way i want to be i want to join with them and so uh the exiles this would be those that had joined with them are also worshiping which is interesting you kind of see there you see some grace you see some compassion you see the flexibility of of changing of converting not just be you're you're a samaritan you can never change well you're a samaritan but you want to join us and there's rules for proselytes even in the law of moses as you know many of the people in the wilderness uh were egyptian that came out with them when they came in several people in jesus lineage as you know are Canaanites or Moabites, you know, Ruth or their, uh, the Jericho woman, Rahab. Okay, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned their, the heart of the, here it is, he had made them joyful and he had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. Once again, a stumbling verse. What, they turned the heart of the king of Assyria. This is Darius, the king of Persia. 
The only way this can be explained is that this whole problem began in the 700s when they are warned, the Assyrians are coming. The the Assyrian is the rod of my anger. God was angry, and he's bringing the Assyrians in. It was Sargon. It was Tiglath-Pileser. It was Sennacherib. And they were terrorized by these kings of Assyria. They compromised. They tried to pay him tribute. Even Hezekiah sent him gold. Just leave us alone. Because the Assyrians were conquering and were brutal. Well, the Assyrians fell the Babylonians. The Babylonians destroyed the temple, burnt Jerusalem. So between Assyria and Babylon, the whole land's been laid waste. Well, now that was overcome by the Persians and Cyrus, who inherited the Babylonian Persian kingdom. First thing he does is writes that scroll right there that they've got in the British Museum. The Cyrus Cylinder says, I'm going to send everybody back, back to their homelands. We need to, instead of bringing all the gods to Babylon, we need to go back where the gods belong and build their temple so all the gods are happy so they'll bless me because they certainly didn't bless the Assyrians or the Babylonians because they keep falling. I'm going to send them back. It's a new idea. It's a progressive way of thinking. And so he's sending the Jews back. And then come Darius, he checked the records, helped finance the building of the temple. And so the heart, the, the, when it says the king of Assyria, God had turned the heart of Assyria against the Jews, but now they're filled with joy because look at this. The very kings that we were afraid of, our ancestors told us about, are actually on our side helping us build this temple, allowing us, encouraging us to worship God the appropriate way. In fact, some of the commands that are going to come out of Darius, and especially our our text, Xerxes came out of Cyrus too, is you're building it, not the people of the land. You're going back to restore it. They've got it messed up. Uh, So they were... uh, joyful that he had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that they aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Uh, and again, there they see, see a typical ending right there, is they see the fact that they are in the land because God wants them in the land, but God had to work through the secular system to get them there. Which again, obviously you can make all kinds of application in our own time, uh, but I, I won't go there Now, we begin chapter 7 tonight. And this is where things, you have to understand this to understand uh, the rest of this book. Otherwise, like I said, it's going to, it's going to shock you. It's going to be like, this this isn't, shouldn't even be here. Uh, Sometimes I think that, although it should be. Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 28. In my mind, I'd like to read through this so you get a feel for it and then come back and talk about it. But first of all, 7, verse 1 through 28, this is the year 458 B.C., no doubt about it. There have been 57 years, and like I've already referred to, these 57 years from 515 to 458 B.C. um, would have included these, and don't, don't forget this. It's just not like life is just smooth. They've got the temple built, they've had Passover, but the Samaritans are still there. The people of the land are still there. And this is going to set the stage for what Ezra is going to be walking into. Because right here we would say this looks good, a glorious day, a great day for Jesus to return. The temple's rebuilt, everyone's on the same page. Jesus doesn't return, and people start living their daily lives mixed up with all the chaos of the, their, their culture. Number A, the Samaritan hostilities that were already mentioned in chapter 4, verse 6 through 23. During this time, the Samaritans continued to oppress them. In fact, we know Artaxerxes, we've already read the letter, before uh, this time, that, during Artaxerxes' time, he's going to re- make a decree to stop building the walls. He, they're going to be building the walls, building up the city. He's going to say, stop it. And that's going to be because of Samaritan opposition. There's going to be general hostility in trade, travel, farming, community establishment. We already saw them getting in lawsuits, you know, people sending lawsuits to the Persian government. These returning exiles were seen as foreign. Now, this makes sense. You can understand this. They were brought in, they came from Babylon after 70 years of captivity. Some of them had been there, you know, 70, it's 586. They came back in, in 539, 536. They came back and says, this is our land. 
and they were given Jerusalem. But you see, it wasn't just a vacant place. People had moved in. And so they're like what we'd say, like immigrants. They're legal immigrants because they've got paperwork, but the people there are like, wait, this is our land. This is my farm. This is where I live. This is where we worship. And so even at this point, they're still seen as invaders out of place, foreigners. And uh, see the immoral interaction as they're living here, the Jews, the exiles that have returned, they're still living day by day with the, and interacting with immoral people of the land, polluted by the Samaritans, remains of false worship of the northern Israel. They were sent into exile, but their religion is still there, the golden calf worship and stuff. And the influx of many pagan gods brought in from, for the exiled people that were brought in. So they are living in a very immoral, compromised culture. And it's going to take day after day after day of being very, very diligent in the law of Moses to meet Ezra face to face when he gets there. But when Ezra, these people decline, they're, they're going to have to decline. I mean, you may have a, a handful, the remnant that makes it, but by Ezra comes back, the average person, just imagine the average church person. They're, you know, just imagine your own life, the ups and downs you've owned had. You can understand that. Common sense, now here it is. Compromise, which is just common sense. If you're going to live at peace, you're going to have to have a little give and take. And so common sense compromise by the returning exiles to live at peace with the peoples, the cultures, the traditions, the religions of the area for peace, for safety, for trade, for intermarriage, for other issues. What would you have to give up to have peace and safety and trade and then, you know, maybe you want to have some kind of family relationship with someone on the other side of the road, you know, the Samaritans. Marry, exchange property. And it's like, it just makes life easier. Well, by that time, they're way down here, living in rebellion towards the law of Moses, and Ezra's going to show up and say, hey, let me teach you the law of Moses. Oh, we, we know what that is. Uh, no, you don't. And it's up here, and you're down here. And that's what's going to be taking place. So here we go, chapter f- 7, verse 1 through 5. This jumps 57 years into the future. And this is, if we've been reading the book of Ezra for six chapters, all of it has been history. I would say Ezra wrote it. Uh, We know these things are written. He's going to be in first person. So I'm going to assume that Ezra wrote this. There's no real guarantee that he wrote it. But it's all history coming up to Ezra's time. It's like Ezra's looking back on what took place before he got there. And now I'm walking in. It's like, dude, you're going to go work for a company. And so before you, you sign the contract, accept the job as the CEO, where has this company been? Okay, and we've got some holdovers from the previous administration. And Ezra's kind of eyeballing this thing, okay, this is the problem. Well, anyway, after six chapters of what has been, now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and that would be Darius's son Xerxes, Esther's husband, had a son, Artaxerxes, it's during this reign, Artaxerxes. Uh, Ezra, the son of Shariah. Now, I'm going to read this because what you're going to notice, I've got underlined in chapter 7, verse 1, the subject of the sentence. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, right? Oh, here's a good place to put his genealogy. So here's all the genealogy, which is incomplete, because if it wasn't incomplete, it'd go on for another five chapters. And then chapter 7, verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon. There's your verb, went up. So you've got basically six verses, and the, the subject and the verb are separated by those six verses. Uh, some, would say, some would say that's a mistake, sloppy writing. Looks like a book that, you know, Generation Word put out. Um, but the very fact that chapter 7, verse 6 He says, this Ezra, he picks the subject up again and gives it to you again. What he's doing is Ezra's going to be justifying himself in these verses. He's coming as a a secretary. I don't know if I spelled that right. I should scribble. Secretary of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. The first. He's, he's He's not just a guy that's just traveling by train over to Jerusalem from Babylon. He's, he's an officer. He's a secretary. He's a scribe of Artaxerxes. And he's being sent on a mission. But he's also a scribe 
of the Lord. And he is very well trained in the law of Moses. In fact, that is his specialty. I would say he's got a doctorate degree in the law of Moses. He works for Artaxerxes, and he works for the Lord. And that's who he is. And so what this is going to do, the first thing this is going to do, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shelem, the son of Zadok. Now, if you can see Zadok and Ahitub, that's back to the days of David already. And then son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zeraiah, son of Uzi, son of Bukai, son of Abishua, and then son of Phinehas. Now, you remember him. He was in the book of Numbers during the Moabite revolt. Uh, son of Eliezer, and you know Eliezer, he was the son of Aaron, the chief priest. So he's skipping. It's not complete, and that's not a problem because son of doesn't just mean this is my dad. So well, I've got it written down on the notes here. Let's look um, somewhere. Yeah, point four. The phrase son of does not necessarily have to mean a father and son relationship. This is used often of a man's grandfather. You even see like Zach, uh, Zerubbabel you'd get sometimes he'd be the son of his grandfather instead of the son of his father. And sometimes they'd put his father and his grandfather, sometimes they'd skip the father. Uh, it is also used of general uh, genealogical connection. And a best case example would be the Messiah is going to be the son of David. Jesus was the son of David. No one has trouble with that because we know what it means. It means he was a descendant in the line of David. There may be three generations between him and David or 300 generations. He's still the son of David. And so this ideal of son of does not mean we've got to have a complete genealogy, uh, but it does mean that Ezra, it does mean that Ezra is in the line or the family of the original high priest and several other high priests that have come and gone in that lineage. So Ezra is definitely a priest. He can definitely come in and teach he can definitely come in and work in the, in the temple. He is, and he's got his lineage. He's not just walking in. I've got paperwork from Artaxerxes. He's got paperwork from Artaxerxes. I've also got my lineage. What's your problem? And so he's coming in with lineage authority, and you're going to see this letter, tremendous authority from Artaxerxes. That Artaxerxes. So when, he's not just going to teach. He's going to make sure the people are living and he's going to be enforcing the law of Moses, sometimes brutally. Uh, so that's his lineage, and that's why that's there, is when you see Ezra, this is his introduction. Now, chapter 7, verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon, or Babylonia. Again, that's the verb, he went up, or he left. So he's going to leave Babylon, or Babylonia, and you get, uh, you're going to see Nehemiah is going to be from Susa, Ezra is from Babylon. It's a 500-mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem if you went straight through the desert. But you're going to see that they're going to leave in April and they're going to arrive in August. And he's not going alone. He's been teaching in Babylon. It doesn't say this specifically, but I'm going to guess that he's, he's not just going to come over to Jerusalem and start teaching. He's been trained. He's been practicing He's been teaching Jews in Babylon about the law of Moses and about the temple. And he's, now he's going to leave with paperwork, and a bunch of them have been taught and convinced they need to get back here. And so he's going to leave with a bunch of people, and they're probably, not probably, they're not going to go 500 miles between April and August in the middle of the summer from Babylon straight across Jerusalem. They're going to go up into northern Syria and then come down, just like Abraham. That's how you travel. That's how Nebuchadnezzar invaded. Uh, that, that's how they would go. But he's coming out of Babylon, and I believe he's probably going to be traveling with people that he has taught that are obeying the law. And so when he gets there, he's already got a portion that he's bringing with him, people that are on board with what he's doing. Anyway, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So there's another mention of the law of Moses. He's trained and skilled in the law of Moses. There is a tendency to think that Ezra was uh, the scribe who edited the books, you know, like ended the book of Chronicles, kind of puts the ending on the book, kind of helped compile it. 
There's no scriptural evidence of that. It doesn't say that in here. If anything, what's going to be said of, of Ezra in this, this introduction here is he was going to exegete. He was going to become, uh, set the standard for interpreting the law of Moses, of looking at it. And this, this is the standard of exegetical work that he was going to do the Jewish exegetical pattern is going to be established by Ezra here. This is what he is establishing. And from there, you're going to have teachers arising, people that don't just come off and, and you know, say flowery things, but they're going to exegete through the law of Moses and then begin to apply it to life so that people can live in line with the law of Moses. This is going to lead to the scribes, the teachers of the law. This is going to lead to the synagogue. Because in each, eventually, you could have a synagogue. If you've got, is it 10 or 15 men in a city, you can form a synagogue. And there would be a synagogue leader, ruler, who would just be basically the custodian of the location. And then there would be teachers that would come in, and they would follow this example of his exegetical work. Nonetheless, he went up from Babylon. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord God had given. A couple of things. Turn the page. And I'd really like to keep going here because this is a fun set of verses, I think. Uh, point one, basically talking about the subject and the verb. Point two, the author's trying to make a point that Ezra, besides being appointed by the Persians, uh, established to establish and enforce law and order, was also in the line of the priest. So he's going to be coming down to establish the law of Artaxerxes and the law of Moses. And Artaxerxes is aware of this law, and Artaxerxes sees no conflict with the Persian law and the Jewish law, and he's expecting them to be enforced by Ezra. Ezra, he, he's a, notice that, secretary. And if you remember what we talked about secretary, the scribe, they're in a sense the eyes and ears of the king. He's going over there to observe that everything is being done according to this right here. And what is this, this standard of law? That is Persian law, and that is the law of Moses. And Artaxerxes is sending him with the authority, with the purpose of making sure we do this. So his failure to say, well, I'll let this slide, I'll let this slide, would be a violation of a secretary who himself will get reported. If he's letting a Persian law slide, he's letting a rebellion start to fester, or he's letting the Mosaic law slide, uh, Ezra could be in trouble. This is his job uh, by the Persians and of course without being said it's his job according to the Lord is his word. So Ezra is really caught between a hard place and a rock. If the Lord's the rock the Persian Artaxerxes is the hard place it's like he's, he's stepped into a very tight wedge. He doesn't, it's like wow he's got a lot of power. Now he's got Two sides, he's got the Persian Empire and the kingdom of God squeezing him into this vein of operation here. Uh, there's an image of Artaxerxes right there on, on, the, on the wall, a picture. Uh, the Jews, I put this in there, the Jews of Babylon were educated, they were prosperous. They were, they'd definitely prospered and become part of the Babylonian culture. Think of Nehemiah. Here's the, again, uh, the back page here. I've got the bowl on the very back page. I've got the, I took that picture, the British Museum. That's this one right here. Artaxerxes wine bowl. There's like six or eight of them there. Around the edge, you can't see it. You can see a little bit there, but it's cuneiform. It has his name on it. He says he's the son of Artaxerxes, son of Darius. He's the king of the ruler of the world. Uh, Nehemiah rose up to the place that he was serving, handling these things and giving them to uh, uh, Artaxerxes. Ezra had risen up as a very educated person and was educating more Jews. So the Jews had moved into the culture, and I don't want to say in that sense meaning compromised, uh, especially since they're teaching the law of Moses, but they had gone into that Babylonian culture, they'd adjusted, they'd learned how to run businesses, they'd prospered. In fact, when we start reading this list next week, uh, it's going to talk about the people that came with him. Uh, they're going to take money, silver. People are going to make donations to the temple. And the, ba the Jews that don't want to come back, for example, Esther never went back originally. Ezra and his family hadn't gone back yet. 
they had silver, they had money. So when they, people are going, they would give gifts to them to take and put in the temple. That combined with the fact that Artaxerxes is going to help finance it. And I've got to quit because we're out of time. Uh, there's many things I'd like to say right there. I really want to read through that letter. Uh, in that letter that Artaxerxes is going to write, he's going to be giving directions to the trans-Euphrates government that as this caravan of Ezra's is traveling, they're to be provided for. Uh, there are certain things they're going to have to provide for him to take down to the temple. And then there's a section in there that he switches and starts giving directions to Ezra himself. This is what I expect you to do. So when Ezra walks, travels across and walks into Jerusalem, he's got paperwork. This is what you're supposed to do for me from Artaxerxes. So he'd meet the other Persian officials. Here's what you need to do for me and for the people that are with me. When he got to Jerusalem, here's what I'm supposed to do while I'm here. Uh, and this is my authority. And it would be, uh, again, that's to understand that, you have to understand that to understand the rest of the book. And, uh, okay, I'd really like to keep going, but obviously I've got to be respectful of reality, which a lot of times I'm not. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you being here. I will say this. Uh, we'll have class next week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. We'll have class the following week on Sunday, but then on the 3rd of July and the 4th of July, there will not be Monday or Tuesday class on the 4th of July. So if you're thinking, do we have to be here on a Tuesday night on the 4th of July? I think we were last year and the year before, but this year we will not be. Because, okay, I'll pray and we're free to go. Father, do thank you for the chance to look into these things that we appreciate having the Word of God. We ask that we would take it serious, that we'd allow it to penetrate our soul, that we would live at a time at this time in history in a way that would be pleasing to you as we follow the Word of God, the things that transform our lives, the truth, that we can use the Word of God to compare with the way society is going, and that we would live at peace and be cooperative but not be compromising, that we live in a way that would bring prosperity and peace to people around us, but at the same time not compromise the things uh, of eternal value. We do, again, ask you to lead us and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your patience. Any questions? Any thoughts?